Well, hello, church. It is good to be with you again. Today, we're going to begin looking at Paul's letters. Last week, we spent some time looking at the history, the background, a bit about his upbringing, his life, his training, who who Paul was, um, a little bit about his mission and ministry uh, to give some context to what these letters are and and what's happening. And today, we're going to be looking at 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. I mentioned last week that dating Paul and his missionary journeys and his letters can be a tricky affair. It's hard to say anything with 100% certainty. Most New Testament scholars agree that 1 Thessalonians is likely one of, if not the first letter written in the New Testament. And in fact, because Paul was working and writing before the gospels themselves were ultimately recorded and written down, 1 Thessalonians is likely the first text written in our New Testament. These two letters are addressed from Paul and his traveling companions to the church at Thessalonica. We think that he arrived there in the late 40s. Thessalonica was a free city, which meant that it was not under the direct supervision or control of Rome. It was allowed to have its own uh, government. It did not have a garrison stationed there. There was not a prefect of the Roman Empire there to control it. They were, in in essence, a free city to govern themselves. They, of course, paid tribute to Rome and were part of the Roman Empire. But they were not like the area of Judea where there were – it was not like Judea, for example, which was an occupied territory in which there were soldiers on every corner. There was a prefect. They were under uh, Roman rule and and authority and Rome kept their thumb on them. And there was this constant threat of revolt and and this tension that was going on as an occupied territory. This was – a a more integral and free part of the Roman society. It, like many of the cities that Paul will visit and plant churches within, was a port city. And because it was a port city, it was a center for trade. Combine that with the fact that it was a a free city and it provided for a much higher quality of life than some of the other outposts in more remote areas. Uh, Again, like Judea, for example. As Paul and his companions come to Thessalonica, they find a typical Roman city full of the Greco-Roman pagan cult, full of idols, full of all the, the life and the culture that goes, or goes with that and surrounds that. They also would have found a, a Jewish community. This was one of the places that the diaspora Jews had landed and, and settled. And so there, was, there were both of those communities, both of which would cause some trouble for Paul and presented a, a challenge for him as he's trying to spread the gospel. He spent some time there, not the three years that he spent in some of the other cities, but we think as much as six months he spent there. He does reference the fact that he and his companions had set up shop and they had worked and plied their trade. So the tent making that we talked about last week or whatever that that skill was that he had learned from his father in Tarsus, he set, set about doing while he was in Thessalonica, developing and growing and working with this church. He was ultimately forced out of Thessalonica by the Jews who, upon hearing the gospel message and seeing the way in which it was taking hold and the the growing nature of the church that was there, they became alarmed and worried in the same way that Paul had been prior to his conversion about what this Jesus movement meant for Judaism. And they drummed up some trouble for Paul and his friends, and they had to flee. In the first of these two letters, we read, that Paul and his companions had moved on to Athens. And after a while, he became concerned that the church that was still very new, um, that he had left only after a matter of months, would be tempted to go back to their old ways. As he said, they would, he would, they would be tempted by the tempter to abandon the gospel that he had given them. And so, knowing that he could not return, that there was too much pressure and it, the area was too hot for him, he walked into town, he'd likely uh, get arrested or stoned or, or run out again. He sends Timothy, 
And so Timothy returns to Thessalonica to check on the church, hopefully to encourage them. And then when Timothy was able to return to Paul, he was able to deliver a positive report. And Paul in the first letter is exuding pleasure and pride in the Thessalonians for the good job that they've done, the fact that they have not caved to pressure, that they've not been tempted away from the message that he left with them, that they continue to love one another and they, they're living the life out that he had taught them to live. And it is out of this pleasure and pride for them that Paul sits down and writes the first letter. And so it's a very positive letter acknowledging the good things that they've done, the good life that they're living, and encouraging them to, to dig deeper and even push further into the life that God has for them. The heart of both of these letters is Paul, as the apostle, caring for and instructing and encouraging his churches to live the life that God has given them and called them to. As we open the first chapter of the first letter, we see that the letter is coming from Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy. So the group of missionaries that have been traveling together and had planted this church are writing them, and Paul presents his typical greeting. He greets them in grace and peace, and he includes the themes of hope, peace, and love. Having received the great report that he had from Timothy, he goes on to acknowledge the great work that they're doing. He is excited, he's ecstatic, he's pleased, he says, in the way that they're behaving, and he spends a good bit of time building them up and acknowledging the great work that they're doing, trying to encourage them, make them feel good about what they're doing, and make them know that he's acknowledging it and he's proud of them. In chapters two and three, he spends a bit of time rehearsing and going over again the history that he has with the church. He, he, tells them and reminds them about the way in which he came and cared for them and planted the church, the ease and the willingness with which they accepted the gospel, the way in which he treated them as a nurse would a babe or a father would a child, he says. And then he goes on to say that it was because of a little bit of an uprising within the Jewish community that he had to leave, that he had moved to Athens. And of course, as they know, and we've already said, he sent Timothy to check on them. And it was Timothy that brought back this glowing review that he's so excited about. And then into chapter four, he begins to give them the instructions. They spent quite a bit of time greeting them, acknowledging, sort of loving on them, building them up and telling them how great they've, they've done. I can remember early on in my career sitting down with, it was actually one of the directors of the company that I was working for. Um, and he was talking about when he sits down and has to have a conversation with a, an employee who he needs to correct or uh, give new or different instruction. He had this formula in which he provides two pieces of praise, tells them how great they are, and then comes and nails them to the wall. And Paul seems to follow a similar format in most of his letters. He spends some time greeting his churches, talking about the things that they're doing well and positive, and then he comes in with his instruction, which is what he's doing in 1 Thessalonians. Now, in this letter, unlike the second one, which we'll see, here he is very positive. And what he has to say is that you're doing a great job. And he says, you're loving each other well. I want you to love each other more and more. And so rather than trying to correct them or rebuke them, he's attempting to lavish praise upon them in order to get them to move even further and even deeper into their relationship with each other and with God. He's trying to get them to push further into their spiritual development and become even more of the church than they already are. He says in the end of chapter four, he says, for you yourself have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. But we urge you beloved to do so more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we directed you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I find those particular instructions remarkable and somewhat interesting given where the church sits today and, and the way in which we live and operate in the world. But we need to remember that Paul is writing to a particular place, a particular time, to a particular people. And that's going to be crucial as we go through the letters of Paul to remember that this is a particular church that he's planted. It's, you know, very, very young. He spent six months there, as we said. It didn't spend six years or three years or an extended period of time in order to really get them going. And so he's worried about them. They're a small church in a community that is Greco-Roman, that is hostile towards Christianity. The closest thing to them is the Jews who also are hostile towards them because of what their belief in Jesus means for the faith of the Jewish people. And so what Paul is encouraging them to do is to be somewhat self-sufficient and in some way to keep their head down, to go about their business, to be as self-sufficient as possible. That's what the working with your hands is about. He's encouraging them to live for themselves, depend on themselves, become their own community that can take care of itself, love each other well, love each the people outside the community equally as well, get along with people. One commentator said that Paul's instructions were basically be productive, not provocative. The reason for that is somewhat obvious when you think about it. If they are out in the streets uh, preaching and causing trouble and riling people up in the way that Paul had done, if, if they who live there and have to be there day in and day out, if they go too hard and are too vocal and too outspoken, they'll suffer the consequences. And Paul, as he cares for these people and loves these people, he spent time with them, he's developed relationships with them. He wants them to be a solid, caring, loving church that can survive. Some of that is also driven by what Paul talks about next, and that is the second coming of Christ. And the first generation of the church, we read in Acts, even in the Gospels, uh, and in a number of Paul's letters, what seems to be an expectation that Jesus will be returning relatively soon. So they're hoping that the second coming, that the return of Christ, the return of the King and the making right of all things is going to happen quickly. And so Paul uses that in his first letter in order to orient and provide a perspective to his church such that what they are doing now and the way they live now, they need to do in a way that will be approved by Jesus who will be coming any moment, that Jesus will be returning. And so we ought to be doing the work. We ought to be loving each other well. We ought to be loving our communities. We certainly ought to be sharing the message of the gospel. Um, But we ought to be doing things in our daily life that are going to matter in the coming age because the coming age is right around the corner or so they expect or they seem to expect. Paul echoes what we know Jesus himself said that they ought to be alert for the time, that, the, that they ought to be found living holy and right lives when Jesus returns. As we turn into Second Thessalonians, we find a letter that is much less positive. At this point, we think this could have been written even within the same year as the first one, that there have been some problems that have arisen, and they've actually arisen out of this understanding of the second coming and the timing. What has happened is a number of people picking up on this understanding that Jesus is coming back any moment. As they think about what's important and what they ought to be doing, they decide, well, if Jesus is coming in a minute, what's the point in working? Why do I need to build up any sort of savings or do anything really? Because at any moment now, any day now, Jesus will be returning. And so there was a segment of the church 
that had decided that they didn't need to work any longer and they had become lazy, they had become grifters, they were taking advantage of the rest of the church and it was creating quite a bit of conflict. And so while the first letter was very positive, uh, there's not much negative in there at all. Paul had been very excited and pleased, he says, about the way that they had been living. The second letter gets prompted by uh, some trouble and some misbehavior. And it's in this letter where Paul comes down a little bit harder. As we begin the letter, he again greets them very nicely as he does. He talks about how much he loves them. He does acknowledge the good things that they were doing, but very quickly he moves into the problems that are there. And he talks about the fact that this lack of work at this becoming lazy on the part of some of the church was misunderstanding what the second coming was about, misunderstanding what Paul had been trying to say to them. And he says very specifically that you ought not be lazy, that you need to do your part, that you need to work, you need to not be a burden on other people. And this is the letter in which Paul says, those who are unwilling to work ought not eat. Now, we should pause here for just a moment and talk about that verse because it's one that gets taken out of context at times. We need to remember that this is a particular situation that Paul is writing into to a particular church. And just like we will discuss as we get into other letters, there are particular problems. The one here is people are being lazy that Paul needs to address. And so what he's saying is those people who are unwilling, those people who can but will not, those people who would be able to go out and do a trade or work in a field or do something to support themselves and the community, but rather choose to be lazy because they think that Jesus is coming back any moment, those people who can but don't, they should not be eating. This gets ripped out of its context at times and applied to anyone who doesn't or can't work. And unfortunately, it has been used within the church and within our society in general as a condemnation of poor people. The idea is, well, if they're not going to work, they shouldn't eat. Well, that's not at all what Paul is saying. That's not the context in which he writes this. It certainly doesn't jive with other things Paul says. It doesn't go hand in hand with the things that we just saw James say a couple weeks ago. It doesn't go hand in hand and doesn't fit with the things that Jesus said if we try to universalize it to this principle that those who aren't going to work for themselves and be productive by themselves shouldn't eat. The idea that we would pull this out of context and create this culture in which we expect people to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, that if they're not willing to do the work, if they're not willing to go out and get a job and do the things that we're able to do, that they don't get to eat, that if they're hungry, they should just go work. Well, that's not consistent with the rest of the gospel that acknowledges there are those in, in, in those times and places, it was the widows and the orphans. There are people who simply can't. And we must, as the church, we are obligated as the church, as the hands and feet of Jesus to care for those people. And it's dealing with this particular segment of people who truly can, they have the means, they have the ability, they can get a job, and they can feed themselves. Well, if they, rather than doing that, decide they're just going to be a drain on the church body, well, then they need to be dealt with. They, they are the ones to whom this sort of thing is addressed. But we need to keep in mind that their particular case and this idea that those who don't work shouldn't eat needs, needs not to be applied universally to everyone. As we step back from both of these letters and we look at them and say, okay, what are, what are, these, what are these things about? What what are the messages that Paul is putting to his church that we need to just sort of take hold of or understand better? The theme that appears in both of them and, and holds them together is this idea of the second coming of Christ and its implications for the way we live our lives. Paul incorporates what we call an apocalyptic theme. 
If you recall, as we talked about Revelation, that was actually the first book we took in our New Testament series. We talked about how that book was an apocalypse. In fact, its title is Apocalypsis of John, uh, the Apocalypse of John. We have in our culture redefined apocalypse. And for us, it often means this end of the world scenario, this cataclysmic scenario in which everything is going to be destroyed and the world remade. But the apocalypse and apocalypse literally is an unveiling or an uncovering. And so when we say Paul has an apocalyptic theme to these two letters, which he certainly does, what we're saying is he's talking about the second coming. And in doing so, what he's doing is unveiling and peeling back the curtain for the church at Thessalonica to explain to them what actually is going on, what will become of the world, what will ultimately happen. And in light of that differing and new perspective, they ought to live their lives differently. So because Jesus is coming back, we ought to live particular ways. We ought to love each other more and more and better and better. We ought to be spreading the message of the gospel and bringing others into the family so that they can be part of that family in the new age. We ought not worry so much about the things that we have and the fanciness of our belongings in our house and the accumulation of wealth or even the reputations that we have or the degree of fame or notoriety we have. Um, we should not care as much what other people think about us because in the end, all of that will pass away. And when Jesus comes and the new earth and the new world, the new creation is made, we will enter into this new world of eternity all of that other stuff will be gone or transformed, left behind, and what will be left will be our relationships and the things that we've built within the kingdom. We saw the same theme in James towards the end of that letter when he was talking about the judge being at the door. He was talking both to the wealthy elites who are oppressing and taking advantage of the poor, but also to the poor, those who were oppressed. To the rich, he was saying, you better change your ways because the judge is coming for you to the poor who were wanting to take up arms and revolt. He was saying, be peaceful, be loving. Jesus is at the door. He's going to make things right. And it is this apocalyptic theme, this apocalyptic perspective, the idea that in the end, it will all be made right, which allows the people of God to live lives of faith, hope, and peace, which are Paul's great themes, which he's already referenced in the introduction to his letter. And he does again at the end of that first letter to the Thessalonians. Also in that introduction was the phrase grace and peace, which I mentioned was a typical Pauline introduction or salutation. It carries with it particular significance and importance. The, the term grace was one that Jews would have immediately recognized. It was a term that carried for, forward from the Old Testament. Grace was one of the attributes that was treasured about God, that he was a graceful, loving God. Peace, on the other hand, was a typical Greco-Roman salutation or greeting. And so when you would greet someone in the streets, peace to you. And Paul combines both of those in his introduction and says grace and peace. Now, as we sit here today and we look at those and we, we see the spiritual and theological significance, both of grace and of peace as things that God brings to us. But as he's writing his letter to this church at Thessalonica and to his other churches that were churches made up of both Jews and Gentiles, in his very introduction is this understanding that these two peoples are being brought together. And this was revolutionary. And this was perhaps the most significant and visible and tangible reality of an apocalyptic mindset. As Paul had gone through these 
10 or 15 years, which we talked about last time, these what we call those silent or the tunnel years in which he was working in Tarsus and formulating his theology and trying to work through what did it mean that Jesus was the Messiah and what does it mean that there was resurrection, but it was just the one Messiah sort of as what he calls the first fruits of the resurrection when the expectation within Judaism would be that everyone would be resurrected at once. The Pharisee, Paul, had been thrown a complete curveball and and now he's forced to rethink everything he knew to be the case and to think about God and the way in which this Messiah figure would come. Messiah didn't come as they expected. Messiah came as a crucified Messiah. Uh, Messiah was expected to come as a conquering king. And, and so it brought with us all sorts of questions and he would spend much time in Tarsus uh, as during this, this period, rethinking and recalibrating his understanding of who God was, what the story of the Old Testament meant and, and what happens now. And because Jesus was the down payment, the first fruits of a coming resurrection in which all people would be resurrected uh, and, the, and the people of God would move forward into this new, new creation together, he saw things dramatically different. The problem had been from the very beginning that sin had crept in and taken over rule of the world. And so man had been separated as we know from God. And as a result of that, God could not draw near to people that there was this, this chasm that was set between God and, and the world that heaven and earth created initially together had been split apart. And that what God had done through Israel and the giving of the law was to call the people out and provide them a way in which to live that could reconnect them, though not perfectly, with God. So that God, through the sacrificial system, could cleanse them of their sin and make it so that he could draw near to them in this place called the temple. But that was all necessary because sin and death had taken control of the world. So those outside Judaism were still under the control of sin and death. They were not provided the means by which to enter back into relationship with God. But Paul came to understand as he works through his theology, works through the implications of the crucified and resurrected Christ, is that through Christ, through Jesus, the one true God had conquered sin and death, that it no longer has power over us, over anyone. And so what that meant was that not only Jews, but now also Gentiles, because the power that had kept the Gentiles away had been conquered and beat and done away with, the Gentiles could now approach God and they could be brought together. And it was this understanding of the new earth, the new reality, looking forward to the time when Jesus would return and create this new earth, this new heaven, this new earth reality, in which all people would be able to be one family. Paul brought all, brings all that forward into the here and now and says, because of what Jesus has done, we already can be one family. And so he brings Jews and Gentiles together. It's why he sees himself as the missionary to the Gentiles. It's why that could even be a thing. And it is the apocalyptic mindset, this looking forward to the time when Jesus will make all things right it's through that perspective that Paul and his churches begin to see we have to live differently. And this is, of course, why Judaism sees Christianity as such a threat. One of the primary walls around the nation of Israel, which was the law and the separation between Jew and Gentile, 
Paul is breaking down and he is obliterating this distinction, which has been so important, but all of that in light of his apocalyptic understanding. It is the peeling back, the unveiling of the true nature of reality now that Messiah has come that allows Paul to create these churches of mixed race, that allows Paul to create a church with men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and freedmen. None of those distinctions matter anymore. And in the two letters to the Thessalonians, Paul is presenting to them this apocalyptic mindset that says, at any moment, Jesus will be returning, that in the end, Jesus will be coming to make all things right. And we ought to be living now as if that's true, because it is. We ought to be bringing that kingdom forward here and now. And that's why as he writes that first letter to the Thessalonians, he says, you're doing a great job. I'm so proud of you. You're loving each other well. Love more, do more and more. You're doing a great job. You're taking care of one another. You're living holy lives. Do more, do better. He's pushing them into this apocalyptic mindset. He's pushing them into the truer reality. He's pulling back the veil and showing them that the war is over. There may still be skirmishes and battles with sin and death, but ultimately it's over and we ought to be doing the things that really matter. Now in this first generation that Paul is writing to, it's, it's perhaps easy for them to imagine that Jesus is coming back any moment. But what about us today? 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. And with the passage of that time, this anticipation and expectation that at any moment the new creation will come upon us, well, that expectation and the urgency with which they taught and lived their lives for us has become dulled. It has become easy for us to get wrapped up with life in the here and now. It is easy for us to look around and worry about how to pay the bills and, and how to improve our life and how to make our time here more enjoyable. And in large measure, we have lost this apocalyptic perspective. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, we have redefined the term apocalyptic. We no longer even have the term to refer to these ideas, but we must recapture that perspective. We must read these letters that Paul has given to the church at Thessalonica that we now have inherited as our scripture. We must read these and hear and understand the urgency. We must allow our own eyes to be opened. We must allow Paul and his message to peel back the curtain and reveal to us that there is an ultimate purpose, that, that there, there will be a time in which the new earth and the new heavens, the new creation comes upon us. And so much of what we worry about now, so much of what we put our time and our energy towards now won't matter. So all of that begs the question, when the new creation comes upon us, when Jesus does return, which could happen at any moment, what that we're doing now will matter. Today, I'm not going to provide the answer. We're going to leave with the question. When the new creation comes upon us and we are together in eternity, what will still matter? So much of what we strive for will be gone. What will really matter? Whatever those things are, do more, be more, do more of that. 
spend your time on those things. And if we do that, we will truly become the body of Christ, the church, here and now and for all eternity. Amen.